We are going to wrap up today our series, The Desire for Eternal Life, which means next week, I think I spoke in a confusing manner last week, um, next week is when you will want to bring your small catechism. And if you don't have it, it's probably worth just splurging and spending the $17 on um, the 2017 edition of the small catechism. Because if you have one of the earlier ones, as I have, I have all these iterations, um, the pagination is off. And some of the questions and materials aren't the same. Um, so if you can get your hands on a 2017 edition small catechism, it's going to be the main catechism that's, you know, you'll find on Amazon or Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. But pick up one of those and, um, bring it with you because we're going to be engaging in a catechetical series that'll take us through the, through the re remainder of Epiphany, through the Lenten season and up really to Easter and, and we'll be done. And then once Easter's over, we'll take a little break and be back to, to start on a new topic, an exciting topic. All right. So today we're finishing up the desire for God. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Were you able to look that up? Yes. Okay. I just noticed I had a Freudian slip. I think I said the desire for God, which is the desire for eternal life. It's not kind of a nice Freudian slip in theme of this class. Um, eternal life isn't worth anything if it's not life with God and if it's not seeing our Father face to face. Let's open up to 1 Thessalonians 4. Today we're going to cheat. And this whole thing has been the desire for eternal life, but with a real eye toward the intermediate state. What happens when you die? Your body goes into the earth. Where does your soul go? What's that like? We've spent the last few weeks um, going into the biblical texts that describe and give us kind of indications and windows into what this intermediate reality is like. But what we find in the scriptures, far more than any talk of the intermediate state, is the talk of the resurrection of our bodies and the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. So what I thought we would do by way of transition is we would just get a flavor for this. We've spent a lot of time with Paul as of late. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, get a flavor of kind of the macro eschatology. If you remember, eschatology is a fancy word that means the study of the last things. So eschatology has to do with the last things. If we talk about micro eschatology, we're talking about the last things for you, the individual's last things. So death and the particular judgment, as it's sometimes called, uh, the angels gather you up to the Lord Jesus and um, you realize real quick if you're going to be in paradise or prison, um, and, and then what that's like for you. When we're talking macro um, eschatology, we're talking about big picture sort of things, and particularly not really the end of you, but the end of the world, the end of the cosmos, and the beginning of the new era, or new age. All right, so 1 Thessalonians 4. 
And it would probably be sufficient to start us at、uh, verse 13. This will give us a nice transition. The goal, again, is to spend、um, most of our time, I think, in Revelation 21 and 22. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Right? Here we find one of the most beautiful Christian euphemisms for death that death is merely sleep. Always what comes into my mind when this motif arises in the scriptures is our Lord's acts to the little girl. Remember, she has, she has died, and Jairus, her father, comes and Says, Lord, my, my daughter is sick. Will you, will you come and heal her?、Um, and then as Jesus is coming, a woman comes and touches him. Remember, she's got the flow of blood for 12 years. We also find out the little girl who died is 12 years. So there's a lot of kind of deeper symbolism going on here with the restoration of these two women, very much like the restoration of the, of the two women, Israel and Judah. They're often depicted in the minor prophets as two sisters. Okay, well, be that as it may, as Jesus is on his way, word comes that she's died. Jesus decides he's going to go on anyway. He gets there. There's all the professional whalers. When somebody died, you would call it, you would, well, I don't know, they'd call. You wouldn't get on your iPhone. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go check it out on, what's, what are one of those apps where you can rate things? Yelp. Yelp. You wouldn't get on Yelp and look for, you know, Ratings for your professional whalers, but you would pay to have people mourn. And as strange as this seems to us, like people who live in glass houses should not cast stones. We have a bizarre and dysfunctional relationship with death if there ever was one. Anyway, it's an almost comical scene just simply because we know the ending, but everybody's weeping and wailing and carrying on and, you know, making, making a great big show of the death of this young girl. And Jesus comes in and is kind of, you know, very, As true man and Jewish man at that, you could almost picture he's out of the way, out of the way. Everybody quiet down.、Um, she's not, she, she's not、uh, dead. She's asleep. And there is great laughter, derision, I think.、Um, laughter in this moment of intense pain. In has come rabbi platitude. And oh, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they're in no. Mood for it. They're in no mood for his platitudes. And so, you know, there's this uproar against him and he dismisses them all. He chases them all out. Again, you can just, you can see this happening almost kind of friendly, but firmly. And he gets them all outside and, and he goes into the house, the mother, the father, a couple of his disciples. And he comes and he sees the girl and、um, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha kumi. And he takes her by the hand and she rises from the dead. Okay? So she is only asleep. Yeah. Once he said, little girl, arise and she arose, do you think anyone was laughing? Well, absolutely, but now enjoy rather than in derision. And so what a transformation takes place there. But we see then that our Lord's power over death is such that death is to him only sleep. A very beautiful comfort we have in this.、Um, so here Paul drawing on this motif. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, our hope is the sure and certain hope that Christ will raise the dead. If you have no hope, you're going to mourn far more intensively. You're going to mourn in such a way as, I'll never see them again. This person is gone forever. And this kind of intense, intense mourning, uh, mourning that we ourselves are precluded from by virtue of Christ and his mastery over death. So thus, there's going to be a qualitative difference between the grieving of unbelievers and the grieving of believers. We grieve, but precisely as those who have hope, the sure and certain hope that Christ will raise the dead, that death will be for them only sleep. Okay, so far so good. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that is, Jesus himself has conquered death, isn't it a delightful thing? I mean, I know a lot gets read into this, but just superficially, isn't it a delightful thing that when the disciples come, they find the burial garments folded up and lying on the stone slab? Jesus makes his bed. <laughs> he was asleep there three days. He makes his bed when he's done. That's it, nice and tidy. Proof text also for my children. <laughs> oh, and it's such a beautiful thing because Jesus sanctifies the graves of those who have died. You know, the, the horror of and reality of death, it's just such an ugly thing. It just is. Anybody who thinks that death is poetic or natural or beautiful or any of this other garbage just hasn't spent any time around it. It's a horrific, terrible thing. You look at the, you look at the earth cut by tractors, dug up and body put in there and Dirt slung back over the top of it. The tractor comes and heaves it all down with the, the front end, the front loader. It's, it's just a nasty, ugly, unpoetic thing. And you, and, and with it comes just this idea of, you know, never again. I'll never see this person again. It's final. It's done. They can't, they're not coming back. Uh, it's over. And it's ugly, and it's unclean, and you can feel real, real distant, real, real empty at a place like a, like a cemetery. Um, but then there's this beautiful proclamation that comes in a Christian funeral, in a Christian graveside service, where we announce that Christ has sanctified this grave. He's made it holy. He's made it one with his grave. Remember what St. Paul says, that um, we who have been baptized are so united with Christ that we have been buried with Him. Buried with Him. That means, in a very real sense, that that grave of our loved one is Jesus' grave. It is the new grave. Remember the big deal that's made about Jesus being laid in a new grave? It is the new grave into which we lay all our loved ones in Christ. And that new grave is his grave. And it is precisely the new grave because it is the grave from which one has arisen and from which others will rise. Remember what Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the grave. So now we see even a new layer of hope placed upon it. 
that what we call that new tomb of Jesus into which he is laid and from which he is risen, that new tomb is a virgin womb. Ah, isn't that glorious? And such a big deal is made of this in the gospel so that we'll grasp this theology. That it's not just that he's somehow like nullified death. It's that he has so utterly destroyed it, he's inverted it to where death is no longer death, but death is precisely birth. The tomb is not a tomb, but a womb. And this place is holy and sanctified. We read that psalm. This is the gate to eternal life. And I frequently point out that though it's completely hidden to our eyes, this very grave that we are looking at is the gateway to eternal life, the gateway to our eternal destiny. All right, so this is the kind of hope, sure and certain hope that we can have, that we can proclaim to one another at the graveside, that we can recall, and when we visit, we can look upon that graveside and know it as it truly is, and see the body of our loved one, you know, with our imagination, see the body of our loved one laid there under the earth, and think, this is just the quilt. It's covering them up while they're asleep, and when our Lord Jesus returns, they will wake up and rise. All right, so let's see if this is what Paul says. I think you'll find it is. All right, so um, once more with verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, so they're already with him. And when God returns, namely on the last day, he's going to bring with him all the dead who have died in Christ, all who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul emphasizing this. He already has apostolic authority. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. Straight from the source. This we have from, uh, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, Paul's dressing a very peculiar and particular kind of doubt that had arisen in the first century. Namely, that if the Lord returns, we're all going to see him first, and we're all going to be first. And what about those who have died, who have fallen asleep? Our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be second to this, or not present for it. And this was causing a great deal of consternation in the first century Christians. So what's Paul alleviating here? He's saying, look, when the Lord returns and we who have not yet died see him, he's going to be bringing those who have died with him. It's going to be an instantaneous reunion at his coming. Of course, the irony of Paul's words is he himself dies. So now he's on the other side of that equation. Should the Lord come, you know, tomorrow at 11 a.m., please, Lord, that'd be great. Um then we would see St. Paul, and we ourselves, though we had not died, would see the Lord and see all those who had died with him. Okay, If you happen to die tomorrow at 10 a.m., and then the Lord's plan to return to earth at 11 a.m., you're going to have the shortest period of interim ever imagined. You're going to get there, see the angels, and you'll have to come back. Um, but, but you will indeed be brought back with the Lord, and we who are alive will see you once more. So when we're looking at the coming of the Lord, we can be certain that no one's going to be, you know, left behind. <laughs> ah, Pastor Humor, sorry. Um, 
All right. So yeah, yeah. Let's continue on with what St. Paul's getting at. All right. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Does this sound like a big trumpet or a little trumpet? Yeah. And the dead in Christ will rise first. What about the dead who are not in Christ? They will rise second. Okay. Why is it important here that the dead in Christ rise first? Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, namely who haven't yet died, will be caught up together with them. Now, here's the language of rapture from which all kinds of uh, theologies go wiggity and start thinking about a rapture. We're going to address the rapture here in just a second, okay? But not to lose the forest for the trees. What's Paul's point in verse 7? We who are alive, who have not yet died, who have not yet fallen asleep, we who are left, when the Lord comes, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. With who? Well, back with verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. So here you are, it's 11 o'clock tomorrow, the Lord returns, what are you going to see? The resurrection of the saints. And in that sweet reunion, we're all going to be caught up to Jesus in that moment, all of us. Why? And why is the resurrection on earth going to follow? Because what's going to happen to the earth? Bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be destroyed by fire. And so those who are risen, those who believe in Christ, who are risen first, and us are caught up out of the earth because the earth is going to be finally destroyed and all the inhabitants of the wicked earth, the God of this world and all his principalities and powers of darkness are going to be done away with, thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, as um, Revelation calls it in two different places. So that's what's happening. We will all be safe from that. Now, what, what's, what kind of mangled up theology has come by this idea of a rapture? Okay, well, it's the idea that when things get really bad, we Christians will be pulled out. It's a really nice idea. You know, one day, uh, my family will come downstairs. Instead of seeing me working a sermon, they'll just see my clothing laying there. No, wait, that would mean I'm there and they're here. <laughs> no, that's not good. That's not good. Um, what um, this, this idea that, that we're all pulled out, and of course... It's secret, isn't it? Christ returns in secret and, and all the Christians are raptured up out and then all the unbelievers are here for a, for a really nasty time, you know, the great tribulation. Is that what this text is teaching? Not at all. And like it couldn't be further from it. And then, and similarly, this idea that Christ comes, remember how the rapture works? And the only reason you know is because there's like cars crashing on the freeway and like planes flying themselves and like you're finding people's clothes laying all over. Like, so this coming of Christ that initiates this supposed conception of the rapture is all quiet. Quick review. <laughs> what happens when Christ returns? With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This is anything but secret. Everyone is going to know. Everyone is going to be what on earth, you know. 
and it's going to it's going to come upon us. Now it's going to come upon the wicked world as a thief upon the night. What like a thief in the night? Like oh, what is this? Uh, and us as Christians, like after we get you know through with the startle impulse, you know it'll be like oh, God be praised, this is the best day ever. And so that's the that's the difference in the reaction. All right, so then um, we're getting our macro eschatology, our big picture eschatology sorted out by the Apostle Paul. All right, um, just, you know, kind of once more 17, then through 18, and we're done. So then we who are alive, who are left, that is, we who have not yet died, will be caught up together with them, that is, with the newly resurrected who did die in Christ. There we all are, in our bodies, lifted up out of the earth, which is going to face judgment with the resurrected unbelievers. And we're with them in the clouds, and there we are meeting the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, we won't always be with the Lord in the air. This is where yet another misconception comes from. This is where you get handed your golden harp and your little pair of wings, and you just float around on top of the earthly clouds forever and a day. Uh, no! I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Again, if you studied Revelation with us a while back, you, you realize that, that heaven is this wild, dynamic, creative, holy, incredible place. Um, you can hardly even catch your breath. It's that amazing. So, no, we are caught up in the Lord, caught up to the Lord, meeting with the Lord in the air for that time. Thus, the judgment will not befall us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but will, in fact, befall the world. We will be safe from it. And then Paul makes the point that we will always be with the Lord. That means in the new heavens, the new earth, and all that is to come in the new age, our existence will be defined as existence with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And indeed we, indeed we should, and we should often, especially as the day draws near. It is a good day for us that's drawing near, the end of evil. Remember what Jesus says about all the terrible and wretched signs that happen in the world? Wars and rumors of wars, false Christs and heresies, all men falling into all kinds of lovelessness and sin, and the whole world going to hell in a handbasket. What does Jesus say? Get really depressed, sleep 14 hours a day, drink the other hours of the day. No, Jesus says when you see these signs, look, you, you, see, the, you see the trees, they, they're growing green, and you go, oh, it must be spring. When you see these things, straighten up, lift up your heads, your redemption is drawing near. Not your stern judge, not judgment day, not the great accounting, not, no, your redemption is drawing near. So again, as Christians, we're filled with this same peculiar hope if we follow Jesus. The same way we stand before a grave where our eyes tell us it's anything but life, and we say this is the gate to eternal life. This is the grave, this is the womb, this is the place where Christ will resurrect my brother and sister from the grave. So we reinterpret what our eyes see with what God has said. We live by faith, not by sight. And the same is true when we see the world going to hell in a handbasket. We need to, you know, when you get good and sick of it, about three minutes into looking at the internet, you turn it off and you say, Christ, you must be coming soon. God be praised. I'm going to get after my vocations like today might be my last time to do them. I bet you are coming home tomorrow, coming to us tomorrow at, at 11 a.m., and you're going to bring us there too. 
And so it fills us with new life, new hope, new perspective. Satan would love us to believe that this is an endless drudgery. Just one day after another, it's never going to end. Here you are just cycling and not going anywhere and it's depressing and you turn bitter and loveless. God comes in and is like, don't live that way. Don't live that way. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. And when you see those troubles, rejoice and know that I, your redemption, am drawing near. And that my mercies to you are indeed new every day. So we have these promises of God. We can live in an entirely different way. We can look at the world in an entirely different way. What's the problem? None of us can ever do this enough or perfectly. Every last one of us falls into despair and depression and irritability. Thus, St. Paul says what? Encourage one another. When you've got this down, spill the beans, encourage one another. When you yourself, you don't have it, you've fallen into the shadow and despair, listen for when your brother, your sister in Christ, your pastor encourages you with these things. Take heart. All right, that um, gets us through then. So the question would be, all right, we're all up in the air with the Lord. The earth is, even though it doesn't explicitly say it, we know this, the earth is being destroyed. What then? What happens next? Before we get to what happens next, any questions or comments you have on this text or anything I brought up? Please. The rest of us, um, are you going to ask a question specific to the text? Heavens, no. Okay, good. Good, good, good. I figured no one would. Um, I'm going to tell you about my day. <laughs> we, can, no. we can, as, as you're asking your question, as I'm thinking up a witty answer, um, we, can, we can all turn to Revelation 21. Okay, this is a witty comment, probably. Mm, please. <laughs> So about, I don't know, eight years ago, it was, you know, almost morning, and there was a sudden burst of energy along the power line near our house, and it sounded like a trumpet, and then it happened again, and I said, Bob, it's here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. It was really loud. But <laughs> I like it. Nice, nice. Well, I hope you waited to open your nicest bottle of wine, you know, so you didn't. (laughs) Just teasing. Um, All right, was there any other question or comment? All right, let's jump into Revelation 21 and 22. Now, again, if we need to jump around a little due to time, we will. We have um, only recently been through this text. And again, the point isn't to give a real technical, in-depth, exegetical treatment of this text, but to rather hit the high points in regard to that question of, okay, the Lord has returned. You know, what comes next? Okay. And just so that you're, uh, you know, aware that I'm not kind of making this up as I go along, if you look just in at the very end of chapter 20 of Revelation, you're going to see um, where death itself, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. Death and the realm of the dead is probably more what is in mind there with Hades. Although, if you wanted to think of it as like that prison, the intermediate hell, fine, I don't care. These were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you can see the demise of death and hell, um, the demise of all who have rejected Christ and chosen foolishly to stand before God in their own proud unrighteousness. What happens next? Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, so new heavens, new earth. We know from St. Paul that by now the resurrection of our flesh has taken place, and we are seeing what will be our eternal abode. In a sense, this, this new heavens and this new earth, you know, it seems like a dream to us right now. It seems very nebulous and um, obscure, intangible, those kinds of things. But when we are there and are seeing it, that will seem more real than this life. In fact, this life will be what feels felt like a dream, and we will look back and think of it as almost like a fever dream. I was not myself. I was not thinking my thoughts. I was not doing my things. What a nightmare. But the nightmare of this life, of reality as we perceive it, will be over, and the true and objective reality will be there. We will feel ourselves at home in the deepest and profoundest sense for the first time. We will find um, ourselves thinking clearly and doing that which we want to do naturally and with great ease. And we will find ourselves just our, our general sense of reality as this is it. Everything else was a dream. This is real. So we want to have these things in our mind as we look at these things from, from this side, you know, as through a glass dimly, St. Paul says, our tendency would be to grasp a hold of this and say, this is reality and that seems like a dream. I'm encouraging you, flip-flop it. This is the dream. That is the reality. All right, so the then not only the new heavens and the new earth, but a holy city, as much as we would... Uh, you know, maybe especially after you've driven to L.A. and got stuck in lovely four-hour traffic there and back, you'd think the city is of Satan. What city? All cities. They're wretched hives of scum and villainy. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's something wrong when people, uh, you know, conglomerate and you get this mass of sinners. The, the, uh, the sum is more than its parts in terms of wickedness and depravity and decay. Um, but, but here we see a redeemed city, that there's nothing essentially wrong with the city or with man gathered together in close proximity. It's a beautiful kind of image of the, of the city, if you want, if you will, the capital of the new heavens and the new earth, in which will be a temple, albeit a very different temple than we're accustomed to thinking if we have our eyes on, strictly on the Old Testament. Um, and so this, this new capital city that is described as coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful, beautiful city. All right, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Um, if you want... Uh, Rhodey's take on the thesis of the entire Bible, it's probably this. God created man in order that he might dwell with man. Remember him walking through the garden in the cool of the day? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve, once they had fallen? 
And how is it going to be restored? This perfect harmony. And, and so much does God want to dwell with man that he becomes Emmanuel. He becomes a man. God with us that he might redeem us and save us and draw him to, draw us to himself for all eternity. See, so that's why I like that. Yes, you have to import some stuff in, but it is a statement from the scriptures that encompass the whole of God's heart and salvific action. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, we know that God is with us right now, but we don't exactly experience that with our senses and, or our reason, and very frequently, even in our hearts and our faith, we feel as though God is sometimes near, sometimes distant, sometimes quite absent from us. Now, all of this is for his good purpose and also to some degree a byproduct of our own consciences. But um, the point here, all of that is done away with and God is thoroughly available to us in all of our senses, body and soul. And there's, there's no sense of God being separate from us in any way. All right, verse 4, I think that this is beautiful. I don't really care what it does to our neat little dogmatic categories. Even there, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's continuity. If there's anything left over, God is there to heal it. You know, it's kind of a beautiful statement because we know we're raised in our flesh. These are, these are the tears of resurrected bodies over just, you know, I, I think the idea that we're all going to get over um, the trauma of this age in the blink of an eye is absurd. I think it's absurd. I think it doesn't do justice to the trauma of this age. It doesn't do justice to the great drama of the cross by which God's Son answers the trauma in his own flesh for us and for our salvation. I can hardly imagine a sermon where our Lord Jesus is preaching about his love and his what he experienced for us and on our behalf, where my eyes aren't going to need a good firm wiping away <laughs> from the tears flowing. Um, you know, we're, we're also, because we're American, everything is awesome, we're also, we're taught that, uh, we're taught that tears are bad. Says who? Says who? Let the tears flow, just know that they will be answered by God who will tenderly and be with us and tenderly wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Now, this is like, this is like your invitation to go read Ecclesiastes. Because death is the thing that ruins everything. <laughs> it's the death that renders everything complete. Death is the thing that renders everything completely meaningless. Now, why would you do anything? It's you're going to die. Oh, to give it to my kids. Oh, they're going to be wicked and or die. You know, and so on. You can just, you can play this game as much as you want. Anything that's of value with anything that you go, yeah, I really like this. Do the Ecclesiastes game in your head and you'll be like, yeah, I don't like this. This is I'm afraid of my life. <laughs> um, so the fact that death is no more is foundational. Because it means that everything, in fact, does have meaning and lasting meaning. You know, when you go out and you build something, it's going to be there forever. It's not going to die or decay. When you start laying a foundation for something, it's not going away. You have all eternity to finish it and God's blessings. And no one's going to come and steal it or ruin it or disaster take it. This, this revolutionizes our entire experience in the new heavens and the new earth. This, this fact that death is no more. That is a, that is an invitation to read into that little phrase profoundly. Ecclesiastes is a great help. 
profoundly just what changes in our mindset uh, when you realize that you've got all the time in the world and nothing will be taken away. All right, now, while there are going to be tears, look at this. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Well, what's going on there? This is, these are symbols of bitterness and symbols of deep, um, you know, mourning. We can think of contrition, mourning over our sins, mourning on account of death or some other grievous loss or change. These are the things that are wiped away. We might say there's no more cause. There will be no more cause for mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things, that's the things we are all enjoying right now, um, these former things will pass away. Along with this fallen earth, it will all pass away. God be praised. Okay, so this is, this is a glimpse into the new heavens and the new earth and what it's going to be like. Now, verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Again, remember Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun until God becomes man. That's pretty new. And from that flows the making of all things new. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay, as now we are reflecting on the desire for eternal life, we can see hinted at um, here um, that which... Uh, oh, what was his name? <laughs> Gerhard. Gerhard was writing about, when you drop down just a little bit into verse 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So what is, what is being spoken of here? It's like, hey, well, at least I won't have to worry about thirst. No, this is bigger picture. All your needs, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, think on that. All your needs, all your thirst will be quenched by the spring of the water of life and free of cost. You won't have to make payment. The one who conquers... That's us invited to participate in Christ's conquering, and thus we become conquerors. We'll have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. All right. Touch more on the New Jerusalem and touch more on the river of life. And then, and then we'll be done with our little, our little study here. But again, see in the imagery, I mean, how do you say it? Everyone's needs will be met. Well, I think precisely, beautifully, poetically in this way of to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without pain. Over on um, the other page in your Lutheran study Bible, verse 9, um, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Dropping down to 14, and, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, 
and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. All right, is it an ornate city, a beautiful city, or not? Unspeakably so. Unspeakably so. You know, God's, God's truth, God's goodness, and God's beauty are all one, and they're all manifested finally in the fullness of time. All right, there's more description. Um, C.S. Lewis makes the point, these are, this is where you get the streets of gold. C.S. Lewis makes the point that what's really being stated here is that the most precious things that we have in this life are the most common things that we have in that life. Um, and he expands that thought out beyond mere gold to the kinds of joys we have in this life um, being simply a foretaste and foreshadowing of those even greater joys that we will have and receive then. Verse 22, we can't, we can't finish up without verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Scandalous statement. But he goes on, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Yeah, Jesus himself is our temple. <laughs> if I had another 20 minutes, I'd wax eloquent on this, um, or not, maybe not so much. But anyway, on this point of uh, Luther, I'm going to fit it in. He likens, he likens the, the courtyard, the holy place, and the holiest of holies. You know that threefold way in which the temple was constructed? So... Um, we're told in the Old Testament scriptures that this is a this is a kind of model of what exists above. Luther's take on this, in 1521 anyway, is that this is describing the human being. So in the innermost part, the soul, the holiest of holies, dwells God. That is, in our faith, in our soul, dwells God. In the holy place the place where the sevenfold spirits are in the light, that's our intellect and reason and all our intellectual gifts enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And in the outer courtyard, our bodies in service to him and his presence. Such that, what would you say? That in Luther's theology, the temple itself, the Old Testament temple itself, shows us not some kind of model of an even bigger temple, but rather a model of Christ and us joined with him. Something very akin to what's just being described here, where the temple itself is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb is the light of the city of God. Shine in my heart, Lord Jesus. Remember that hymn? It's all based on this text. It's all based on Revelation. If you're not really think, hearing it in Revelation, you might hear it as kind of like um, maybe a little pietistic, but that's not the intent. The intent is to reflect this theology that the one who shines in our heart, for, or the one who shines in the temple for all eternity is already shining in our hearts, and we wish that he would shine all the more. It's the prayer of that hymn. It's a beautiful sentiment. Now, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, you know, we keep our, we keep continuity with who we were in this life, what nation we belong to, and we bring that unique glory and diversity into this city of God and into this temple of God that is Christ. Well, I could go on. There's a river of life, and then Jesus promises to come soon. But I think that's all the time I have for today, and hopefully that wets your taste buds for 
that life which is to come. And if not in the intermediate state, we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. And we can be sure and certain that these things will in fact come to pass. And thus we can also encourage one another with these things. The Lord be with you.